Well, I have been chomping at the bit to explore the story of Joseph together with you on weekends, and now it's here, and so I'm very excited about it. We're going to launch into this for the next four weeks, looking together at the intriguing story of this young man. About a year ago, Janet, who read the scripture for us, put together for the Women's Summer Study a daily devotional, kind of a companion guide for the story of Joseph, and with her permission, we printed up a few hundred more copies, put a cool new cover on it, and we're making it available to you for one dollar. You can uh, pick up one of these in the lobby and use it for your daily devotions beginning tomorrow. She gets all the royalties from those proceeds. (laughs) No, it's just kidding. It's, uh, that covers our printing costs. But I hope that you will pick one up, and that will help you follow along and track with us more as we look into this story. Well, you know, when I come to church, I want to learn about God. <laughs> I don't know about you. I, I want to learn about the Lord. I want to learn about Jesus. I want to learn His ways. You know, David wrote a prayer in the Bible. It says, teach me your ways, O God. Show me your paths. I want to know the ways of the Lord, don't you? Have you discovered yet that the ways of the Lord are kind of mysterious? (laughs) That his paths are sometimes perplexing? You know, through Isaiah, he said, my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Have you discovered that yet? It's the truth about the Lord, and we're certainly going to see that and be assured as we walk through the story of Joseph together. You can take the study guide out of your worship folder and follow along. I really have just one point of application today from Joseph's story. I'm going to give it to you up front so it can be marinating in your mind while we look at Joseph's story. It's in the box there. It goes like this. God's people can trust in God's sovereignty to accomplish God's purposes in God's timing for God's glory. That's a mouthful. Why don't you say it with me? God's people can trust in God's sovereignty to accomplish God's purposes in God's timing for God's glory. And this is what we're going to be challenged with all through the unfolding story of Joseph. And did you notice the key word in that sentence? God? God's sovereignty, God's purposes, God's timing, God's glory. Oh, how important it is for us to realize the centrality of God in the Bible, in human history, and in our lives. So let's jump in. In Genesis 37, the passage that Janet just read for us, first of all, we're made aware of Joseph's dire predicament. I mean, he was in a spot, wasn't he? (laughs) What a distressing situation. He's 17 years old. Any 17-year-olds in the room? You're 17. Yeah, okay. (laughs) For a few more days. uh, He's 17 years old. One day, he finds himself bouncing along a dusty road, surrounded by strange-sounding people who are foreigners, headed who knows where. His whole life in the span of 24 hours gets totally turned upside down. I mean, one day, he's at home playing Xbox in his house, (laughs) listening to his iPod. The next day, totally, everything's changed. His heart's all aflutter with anxiety as he realizes, I don't even know where I'm going. I don't know these people. Everything that is familiar to me, I've just been removed from. That is a distressing situation. How did it come about? Well, the narrative tells us 
His father Jacob, so Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, his dad Jacob one day sent him out to go check on his brothers who were out grazing the flocks, and Joseph finally located them miles away from where he thought they would be. And as he approached them, he was probably excited to hang out with his brothers, right? And uh, they look off in the distance and they see him coming, and in their hearts, their deep-seated resentment and hatred for him flares up. Note to self, your hatred in your heart will cause you to do and say things that you'll regret later. That happened here. The brothers see him coming, and they saw it as an opportunity. Like, hey, we can do something here. And they quickly formulated a devious plan to kill Joseph. Now, why do they hate him so much? Why do they despise him? Well, the text gives us several reasons. It says that Joseph had tattled on his brothers on at least one occasion, taking back a report to dad about the shenanigans they were up to out in the field. They didn't appreciate that. Also, we find out that he was dad's favorite son, right? Born of of his second wife, his beloved wife, Rachel. So the brothers were jealous of Joseph's favorite son status, which was symbolized by that dreadful designer jacket that his dad had made for him. He was always wearing. It was in their face every day. And they're thinking, you look like a walking rainbow, for crying out loud. Then there were the dreams. The dreams. If they weren't already ticked off enough, their little brother had the gall to tell them about his outrageous dreams that had them bowing down to him like some kind of supreme ruler or something. You can imagine that didn't set very well with them either. And So for all of these reasons, they hated him. It says it several times. They despised Joseph. And so when this opportunity now presents itself, they quickly put together a scheme to get rid of Joseph once and for all so they don't have to put up with his nonsense any longer. First, it was a plan to kill him and throw his dead carcass into a pit there in the field, then covered up by lying to their dad about what took place. But Reuben, Reuben, the oldest, the eldest brother, the firstborn, I don't know, a, 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 a thought of pity or compassion arose in his heart, and he talked the brothers out of it, so let's not kill our brother. It's our flesh and blood. Instead, they grabbed him and threw him into the pit alive and then sat down to eat Chick-fil-A together, figuring out what to do. Then in the distance, they see, along the dusty path, a caravan of merchants coming down the road. Judah, the fourth oldest among the brothers, got an idea. Hey, guys, let's not kill our brother. Let's ease our consciences and... Make some money off of him by selling him to these traders who are on their way down to Egypt. And so that's what they did. To have a plausible story to take back to dad, they stripped Joseph's treasured coat off of him first. Then they killed an animal and sprinkled its blood on that coat. And when they got back home, they presented their father with a tall tale about how Joseph had been mauled by wild animals and wasn't it all just so sad. And that news just about did poor Jacob in. Just about did him in. And that's how Joseph got into this mess. Favoritism and foolishness leading to jealousy and hatred, giving rise to greed, betrayal and abandonment, followed by lies and deceit, 
all resulting in inconsolable sorrow and grief for Father Jacob. Welcome to the lives of some of the most famous men in the Bible. (laughs) Sinners, all of them. All of them. So there's Joseph now, bouncing along the dusty road, no doubt dazed and confused, trying to process everything that's just happened to him. He had no idea what was really going on. He couldn't think of anything he'd done to deserve being treated like this. Why had his brothers done this to him? And beyond that, where was God? Where was the God of his great-grandfather Abraham and his grandfather Isaac and his father Jacob? The God he had heard so much about growing up. Hadn't God made his family a promise? Where was this God? And how could he have allowed this to take place? Have you ever been in situations like that? Distressing situations where you're like, where where is God? God, why didn't you stop this? God, why don't you do something? You ever been there? Been felt like that? Maybe you have an inkling then of how Joseph felt that day. I don't know if you noticed this, but when Janet was reading all of Genesis 37, God isn't even mentioned. His name is not even mentioned in the chapter. And I'm sure to Joseph it felt like God was nowhere to be found and it abandoned him like everybody else had. But what we're going to see in this story as it unfolds is that God's silence does not mean God's absence. Oh yes, God is present with Joseph in every way. It's just that he was working, God was working in stealth mode. Invisible, behind the scenes, orchestrating things, weaving together events to accomplish his purposes and doing so through some very surprising means. But bouncing down the road, there's no way Joseph could have fathomed any of that in that moment. I mean, the kid was 17, right? Jacob, Father Jacob's reaction tells us he couldn't find anything to give him any hope either in this situation. And the brothers who later we find out had some misgivings about what they had done, they had no clue that an invisible someone was orchestrating everything, even their own sins, for a greater purpose. So to get a peek behind the curtain, (laughs) to see what's really going on, we need to fast forward a a few chapters to a point in time where a much older Joseph meets with his brothers and offers a altered perspective (laughs) of what had happened on that day. 22 years later, so Joseph was 17, plus 22, he's now 39. Thank you all you math majors. There, now almost 40 years old, with his brothers standing before him, obviously intimidated by this powerful ruler who they did not yet recognize to be their brother, Joseph looks at them and says this, Joseph, or Genesis 45, 4. Joseph said to his brothers, come near me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me here before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five more years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. There's no food. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep alive for you 
many survivors. So Joseph's looking at his brothers and he said, yeah, you did it. You sold me into slavery, but you know what else? God did it too. God sent me here. And with that stunning statement, Joseph pulls back the curtain and reveals the providential hand of the Lord God Almighty behind the whole episode. Fellas, God did this. It was God through you who sent me here ultimately to preserve your lives. You played your part, yes. But ultimately this was God's plan and that's the underlying reason for why I'm here in Egypt now and able to provide you with food. And so here is where I need to ask you, church, this question. Do you have room in your theology for a God who is big enough to accomplish all of his purposes even through wicked men and their sinful choices? Is your theology that big? If not, I pray the Holy Spirit will open your mind to that because it is all through the Bible. I'm a, I'm a fan of what is sometimes called big God theology. I like big God theology. Big God theology starts the conversation not with us, but with God. It views God as big enough to do whatever is in his heart to do, even though it might boggle my puny little mind, even though it might not fit with my understanding of things. In his book, Spectacular Sins, John Piper says this, There is in the Bible a pattern revealed of how God works. It is to take the sins of murderers and destroyers and amazingly make those very sins the means of the salvation of the destroyers. Make room in your mind for big God theology. To see more clearly how exactly God did this in Joseph's case, we, we've got to get a higher perspective. We've got to get airlifted way up high to the view from 30,000 feet, the wide-angle view. Because you see, this is Joseph's story that we're exploring, but it's not just Joseph's story, is it? In fact, I'd contend that it's not primarily about him. Rather, it's one chapter in the story of God. Remember this when you read the Bible. The Bible is first and foremost the story of God. It's God's story. And when we read things in the Bible, we need to ask, how does this story fit into God's story? You know what I'm talking about. The, bi the big story, right? The story of God, the creator, working in human history to redeem for himself a people through the work of his son Jesus in order to have a family to dwell with forever. That story and so when I read Joseph, I say, how does Joseph's story fit into that story? So let's put this story into its larger context by looking back at the covenant promise that God made to his ancestors. Number three, God's covenant promise. And this is truly amazing. So I, stay with me. I'm going to summarize it for you. In Genesis 1, in the beginning, God what? Created the heavens and the earth. He created everything God did, including humanity. In Genesis 3, though, we find that humanity, our ancestors, wanted to run their own lives. They wanted to take the place of God. They rejected God's authority. They sinned. After the fall of man, God said, 
I'm promising that there will be a chosen seed. It's called the seed of the woman, a very interesting and unique phrase. A truly unique person is going to come one day onto the scene and crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 12, we're told that God chose the man Abram, apart from anything he did, it was just sovereign grace, to be the father of many nations through whose line that chosen seed would come. Genesis 12, 2. God speaking, I will make of you, Abram, a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. Listen, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is a veiled reference to the seed coming through the line of Abraham, or Abram, still called that at this point. Problem was, Abram and his wife didn't have any children. Her womb was barren, they were childless, and so in Genesis 15, God comes back to Abram and he confirms his covenant with him, promising again to give him abundant offspring, plus a promised land for his descendants to possess and to dwell in, and again, the promise to bless the nations through his seed, even though he was childless, and God confirmed that covenant through a very weird, strange, and mysterious ceremony that signified that God would do what he promised no matter what. Now listen, then in that same conversation, he probably mystified Abram even more by saying this, Genesis 15, 13. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. Now, that's a strange way to start a covenant relationship. <laughs> I'm going to bless you, make your name great, give you abundant descendants, but they're going to be in slavery for 400 years. <laughs> then I will bring them out of slavery. That sounds weird to us. Why the delay, God? Why the 400 years? Why can't we just go there now to the promised land? Two verses later, God explains the need for the delay. He said this, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Who are the Amorites? They were a pagan people living in the promised land. And they were sinning up a storm up there in Canaan, accumulating sins, piling up judgment against themselves. God was keeping track, but he's saying they would not be judged until the cup of their sin was completely full, and God knew that would take 400 years. When Joshua, after that period, eventually did come in and wipe everybody out, it was because that threshold had finally been reached, God's patience had run out, but until that point, the children of Israel would be stuck in Egypt for 400 years. Do you subscribe to big God theology? I do. God is big. When God's doing one thing, he's doing a thousand things. He's doing stuff down in Egypt. He's doing stuff up in Canaan. He's a big God. 
So Abram's descendants would need to be in Egypt for 400 years while the Amorites up north were sinning, 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 sinning. Now, how would Abram's descendants eventually get to Egypt? Well, Joseph told his brothers the answer. God sent me here ahead of you. What prompted that? Well, we're told the answer to that in Psalm 105, which is a psalm that celebrates God's sovereign plan. In verse 16 of Psalm 105, it says this, When he, God, summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. Don't make that verse say less than it does. How did the famine come on the land? How did that happen? God summoned the famine. (laughs) God did it. And in anticipation of that, it says God orchestrated the events that led led to Joseph's landing in Egypt, where after many twists and turns, he was elevated and promoted to be the official in charge of the food that would be stored up. And the fact that Egypt would have storehouses full of grain in the midst of the famine, would become known to everybody in the region so that when Joseph's family up in Canaan was starving because there was no food, they would hear, there's food down in Egypt. And Joseph would would already be there ahead of them, ready and able to serve his family by providing food for them so they wouldn't starve. Then he would end up relocating the whole family to Egypt. That's how Abraham's descendants got to Egypt. It was all part of a plan. God's plan. Then after 400 years, they had kids, kids had kids, kids had kids, lots of kids, grown up, lots of people, a million maybe. God raised up a deliverer named Moses. Moses would show God's power to a new Pharaoh It was Moses who would command the blood to be put on the doorposts of the Jewish homes to avoid the judgment of God at that first Passover. It was Moses who would deliver God's people and take them through the Red Sea on dry land and then lead the whole nation down to Mount Sinai to receive the law from God, the Ten Commandments. It was Moses who would lead them through the wilderness and finally into Canaan, the Promised Land, where not Moses but his successor Joshua would spearhead the conquest of that land and wipe out the locals whose cup of sin was now full. Is your mind spinning? When God is doing one thing, he's doing a thousand things. He's a big God. Look, if Joseph's brothers, rewind back, okay? In the pit, Joseph's in the pit. If Joseph's brothers don't let their jealousy drive them to sell their brother down the road, then there is no provision of food for the family 22 years later. Jacob's clan dies of starvation in Canaan because there's no food. There's no relocating of that whole clan to Egypt. There's no 400-year enslavement there. If Joseph's brothers don't let envy overcome them and sell their brother whom they despise, then there is no Moses No ten plagues, no Passover lamb, no deliverance through the Red Sea, no law given at Sinai, no wanderings through the wilderness, no conquest of Canaan, no judgment of the Amorites' sin, no walls come tumbling down in Jericho, no land of promise occupied, no thriving Israelite nation, no David, no Solomon, no temple. None of that happens. 
if Joseph's brothers aren't jealous enough to want to get rid of him for good. So I say, thank God Joseph's brothers hated him that much. No wonder Piper calls their betrayal a spectacular sin. Thank God, listen, that he takes the sins of murderous people and turns them into the means of the murderer's own salvation. How is it that Joseph's brothers lived and got food through their betrayal of their brother 22 years previous? How big is God? He is bigger than you thought. He's big enough to be doing a thousand things while he's doing one thing to accomplish his purposes. And so I say, God's people can trust God's sovereignty to accomplish God's purposes in God's timing for God's glory. But you know, thinking about this story, there's something else that would not have happened if Joseph hadn't been sold into slavery. Something huge. I'm telling you, when Joseph was in that pit that day, crying out to his brothers, don't do this, guys, don't do this to me, while they're eating lunch. If that doesn't happen, massive, eternity-impacting things were at stake in that pit that day. Stretch your mind a little bit more, if you can, to think about God's redemptive pattern. Say, what are you talking about? Well, I've mentioned to you on several occasions that I'm learning to read the Bible through what I call gospel-tinted lenses. You heard me say that, right? That means when I read the Bible, I'm looking for Jesus. <laughs> I'm looking for Jesus. I'm looking for the Christ connection. And I do that because that's how Jesus said to read the Bible. John 5, 39, Jesus said to a group of people, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, it is they that bear witness about me. To some Jewish people, he said, you're looking in the Old Testament to find eternal life. I am eternal life standing before you. The scriptures are about me, Jesus said. Now, how many of you are human? Can I see your hands? All right. Almost nearly all of you. Being human, we can easily be influenced to think that the Bible is primarily about us. That we're the heroes of the story and God is a nice supporting actor to have around so that he can use his power to help us achieve our goals. I used to read the Bible that way, but then Jesus had the gall to go and wreck that for me because he said, no, 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 no. The Bible includes you, yes, but it's not about you. He said, the Bible's about me. It's my story. I'm the hero of the story. I'm the main actor in this plot line. I have the starring role. Remember when he was traveling along the road to Emmaus with two unnamed disciples, and they were all perplexed about what had just happened in Jerusalem the last few days? And it says, Jesus looked at them and said, you know, from Moses and the law and the prophets, he explained to them everything in the scriptures about himself. He said, those scriptures that you've studied and memorized your whole lives, they're about me. They're about me. So to read the Bible like Jesus read the Bible, I need to put my gospel-tinted lenses on. Before jumping ahead and asking, what does this have to do with me? 
I'm learning to first ask, what does this have to do with Jesus? How does what I'm reading about fit into God's grand plan to redeem a people for himself through the sacrifice of his son so that he would have a family to dwell with forever? Looking through those lenses now at the story of Joseph, I see three things, at least three things. I'll give you three. First, Joseph's story gives us a preview of Jesus. With gospel-tinted lenses on, I see that Joseph's story actually points to and anticipates Jesus' story. Think about the plot line. A righteous young man is hated, betrayed by his brothers, treated unjustly, and sold in order to ultimately preserve life and save people. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) I really don't think that Joseph was meant to represent me in the story. I think Joseph was meant to represent and foreshadow Jesus, the ultimate sinless sufferer who would come. Jesus would be the true and better Joseph, the truly righteous son who would also be sent to a foreign land to be betrayed and sold for silver and suffer at the hands of bloodthirsty men and be unjustly accused. But his suffering would result not just in the preserving of physical life, but in the providing of eternal life. Amen? And like Joseph, this one, after his suffering, will take a position of regal, kingly prominence. But in a greater way, because at his name, every knee, not just in Egypt, every knee in heaven and on earth and under the earth, will bow and say, Jesus Christ is Lord, King who reigns. Joseph's story points us to Jesus. Second, Joseph's story shows us God's pattern for how he goes about saving people. Remember at the beginning I talked about learning God's ways? Well, this story illustrates a key way God works, and it's this. God uses sin and suffering to save his people. Over and over and over and over again. One scholar noted that this pattern is so prevalent in the Old Testament that the Jews, who had memorized much of it, should have recognized it in Jesus when he came on the scene. So when Jesus came and he started to be hated by people, when people started to despise him and unjustly accuse him, and when the leaders grew increasingly jealous of his influence and plotted to kill him even though he had done nothing wrong, someone should have said... That's not evidence that this Jesus is not our Messiah. That's evidence that he is our Messiah because that's how God works. In Joseph's life, Moses' life, Job's life, Esther's life, it's a pattern throughout all the scriptures. When Jesus was eventually betrayed and sold for silver, somebody should have seen the pattern and realized this is God's doing because this is how God works. We know that because it's all through the Old Testament. God uses sin and suffering to bring about life and glory. Third thing I see is that Joseph's story shows us how committed God was to preserving the line of Messiah. Yes, God was doing a thousand things that day when Joseph was thrown into the pit, but without a doubt, the main thing he was doing, listen, the main thing God was doing was making sure 
that Joseph's older brother Judah stayed alive. It's interesting to note that the line of Messiah does not run through Joseph. Did you know that? It runs through Joseph's older brother Judah. Have you ever heard Jesus called the lion of the tribe of Judah? Yeah. Listen, listen. If Judah starves to death in Canaan, you and I are not here today worshiping Jesus Christ. He was the great, 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 great grandfather of Messiah. God was at work preserving the line, the seed. Genesis 38, the chapter right after the one Janet read, tells the story of Judah, who was not a stellar character. It tells the story of him having sexual relations with his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, who had dressed up like a prostitute and seduced him and became pregnant by her father-in-law, wherein he later felt foolish and regretful for what he had done. But in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3, when we read the genealogy of Jesus Christ, we find that his genealogy includes the love child of Judah and Tamar, a boy named Perez. God's ways are higher than our ways. We think God only goes around picking out perfect, righteous people to work through. No, there aren't any. So he works through sinners. Like you, and like me, and like Judah and Tamar. To me, that's just one more illustration of God taking the sins of man and making them the very means of their salvation. It's amazing. It's mind-boggling to think how God can do that. But as I said, he's bigger than we thought. He can do more than we thought. As Romans says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds. Or, modern translation, kicks sin's butt. (laughs) This is an incredible story, but we'll leave off there for now. There's so much, 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 much more. Let me challenge you with this. When you think about the story of Joseph, I want you to think first of how it relates to the story of Jesus, of Jesus Christ, how it previews his suffering that would save his brothers and sisters. How Joseph's story showed the pattern of how God works through sin and suffering to accomplish salvation. And how it demonstrated God's sovereignty in preserving the line of Messiah so that Jesus could come one day, live that perfectly beautiful life that you and I could not live, then hang on a cross and suffer and bleed and die for our sins be raised from the grave so that one day you could put your faith in a living Savior and be saved. That's the way to read the story of Joseph. First, Joseph's story, like all the others in the Bible, is first and foremost about Jesus. But in your mind you're saying, can't it also be about me? I mean, even just a little bit, please. (laughs) And I would say yes. Yes, there is much in the story of Joseph that can be applied to our personal lives. It's just, we've got to see Jesus first. We've got to see that first, then and only then will we have the right perspective for fitting our story into the big story. Does that make sense? That's how Jesus said to read the Bible. Look for him first. 
In a moment, we're going to commemorate our Savior's death through communion, through the Lord's table. So you can be preparing your hearts for that right now. Celebration of our Lord's table. Before we do that, I want to, I've already given you the most important application of Joseph's story for you and for me. And so I'd like you to repeat it with me one last time. It's that encouraging truth that reflects big God theology. It's in the box at the end of your outline there. Let's say it together one more time. God's people can trust in God's sovereignty to accomplish God's purposes in God's timing for God's glory. Amen. Let's pray together. God, you are so big. You're bigger than we thought. You can do more in an instant than we can do in a lifetime. You can manage a thousand million situations all perfectly towards your ends, even using our weakness and sin and shortcomings and failures. Lord, I know there's some in this room who struggle to trust your sovereignty in the situation they find themselves in. I pray you'd give them big God theology (laughs) and plant that in their hearts. Lord Jesus, as we come to you now and come before you at your table, we pause and we get in our minds now that picture of you, your body being lacerated, cut, bruised, crushed. We think of your blood streaming down your body, dripping onto the ground and we know that was the purchase price for our salvation thank you thank you for laying down your life for us so that we could be saved and avoid the judgment of God when we place our full trust in you may these moments now be precious may your spirit speak to us and meet us in a special way pray in your name